Welcome to the Saturday Night Live After Party. This week, I'm joined by none other than SNL alum Gary Kroger to discuss his storied path from the Practical Theatre Company to Saturday Night Live and beyond. Gary's insights on SNL, showbiz, and life in general are well-earned and fascinating to hear. If you'd like to hear more sage advice from Gary and his showbiz pals, check out his podcast, The Gary and Kenny Show, wherever better podcasts can be found. And you can find us at snlpodcast.com. Enjoy this full-length, supporter-only version of this week's episode. If you like what you see, you can find all of our unabridged, ad-free video coverage of Season 46 exclusively on Patreon and Subscribestar slash SNL Podcast. It's our supporters who make this show possible, and we are so thankful to everyone who's already come on board. All right, enjoy. Well, um, okay, so for our audience, this is actually take two because I forgot to hit the record button. But um, <laughs> we, were, we were we were an hour and a half into it too. <laughs> yes, fortunately, we only got a couple minutes in, but we were just basically laying out your new well. Hi, everyone. This is Gary Kroger, <laughs> SNL <laughs> alum, um, who I've crossed paths with on Twitter occasionally and who recently has launched a podcast, as so many of us during COVID are doing. <laughs> I, think, um, I think more people have a podcast than don't have a podcast. These yeah. Days. Yeah. I watched the stats. It's it's the hockey stick. It might as well be the, the climate change hockey stick, where right. as soon as COVID hit, the, the number of podcasts <laughs> just skyrocketed. But for some people who have lived a colorful life and have, you know, a few, few fun contacts in their Rolodex, um, they might actually be able to bring something pretty, pretty fun to the, the podcasting space. And I think that's kind of, uh, you know, maybe, maybe where yours is going to land. So lay it out. What, what's your show and, and why does an SNL audience want to tune in? Well, I was on SNL and I know a lot of SNL people and we've had a few on already. It's called the Gary and Kenny show. Kenny Seisler is a guy who directed Comic Strip Live when I was the host on Fox back in 1990. But we've stayed friends. And largely what we've talked about in the past are political issues. So we started a podcast based on my blog called Gary Has Issues. And we would talk about issues du jour or, or the big issues, immigration, gun control. But very quickly, it got stale. Not because those aren't important issues, but People weren't as connected to it because there were news programs and major league pundits that could do that already and plenty of podcasts. Right. So we looked at ourselves and, well, what do we know? Well, we know some really interesting people in show business. You know, we'll be lucky to ever get a Tom Hanks, but you know what? We know Mark Gordon, who produced Saving Private Ryan, Chris Melodandre, who produces the Despicable Me movies. And I can bring on Joe Piscopo. I just had Brad Hall. We just interviewed Tim Kazarinski, and that's coming up. And it gives people a real uh, nuts and bolts view of how things get made. You know, it's, it, it, you, you see the big stars on talk shows. There's not much we don't know about them. But when you meet the people who are maybe not so much in the limelight, but really the movers and shakers, some of them behind the scenes, it's a very interesting story that they have to tell. Now, yeah. we don't just try to be information about how to get started in show business. We try to be as funny as we can. Sure. And our guests are usually pretty lively people, too. So yeah. we've just gotten started. We're getting our sea legs, but it's a lot of fun. You mentioned a lot of podcasts. Well, there are, but that's a very good way to use this time when we've been in this lockdown for a year. Mm -hmm. And even though we're coming out of it, you know, that this has been a very good use of time and entertainment and information. Yeah. And so no. we... We plan to continue for as long as people are interested. The Gary and Kenny Show. 
<laughs> yes. Uh, and we'll of course have links and all that in the show notes. So people will absolutely be able to find you. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of like the podcasting space has become a bit of a masterclass for anyone that really yeah. just wants to be the fly on the wall and hear those conversations that used to only happen in the biz, you know, at, right. at a table at a restaurant in a, you know, right. in the corner. It's now, you know, everyone can participate and kind of live vicariously through those experiences. And, um, I just wrapped up the, the Brad Hall episode that, that you dropped a couple of weeks we ago. Just did, yeah. And I got to say that was an absolutely fascinating listen, especially for, you know, SNL nerds like myself. Well, SNL people love, they love the stories behind the scenes and mm. they love every level of the cast. You know, right. I, I didn't become a big breakout star, but I'm doing a lot of these and I'm guesting on a lot because I was there, sure. you know, and the stories that I have to tell the SNL crowd finds very interesting with Brad Hall. Of course, we mentioned his wife, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and of course, we'd love to have Julia on the show. But we very carefully didn't just say, hey, how's Julia? What's Julia doing? Give us some. Right. It was about Brad. <laughs> right. And that's important for people to know that we focus on this person, not just who they know or who they happen to be married to. Right. Yeah. And it, and it as much as you guys went down the road of reminiscing about SNL, so much of the conversation was just how you guys function in the industry and just your philosophy about you know, how, how, what jobs do you take? What jobs do you walk on? And, you know, how do you make sure that you're a participant in the process and kind of enabling the people around you? Like there was so yeah. much just generosity in that conversation that, uh, I don't know. I, I lap that up. I, I love to hear that kind of stuff. And it's not like Brad Hall doesn't have a story or two to tell, you know, without <laughs> having to name drop his wife. So, uh, I, I thought that it was a great listen. So I can wholeheartedly encourage everyone oh, to, thank to you head very over much. and check I, it I out. I appreciate that, uh, that yeah, uh, plug and, a lot. Yeah, and I'll I'll enjoy Tim Kazarinski and whoever else you have coming down the the pipe in the future. But you are more than just a podcast. I mean, you've you've <laughs> I obviously so. you've you've lived a life. Uh, you've run the gamut from showbiz to politics, and uh, yeah. I feel like I feel like there's a story there, and well, uh, <laughs> there is. Yeah, but it's not a narrative that makes much sense in a way. My story is the fact that is this: I'm still mm -hmm. alive, and I'm still going to try to do things. I have one agenda, and that's to keep trying to do new things. Sure. You know, uh, I have my story is one of success and failure mm -hmm. in almost everything I've done. And I don't say that hoping to, that violins play. I've been very successful, not always as successful as I want to be, but that's always been okay because then I do something else. You know, I ran for. Congress. I ran for the Iowa House of Representatives. I ran great campaigns. I was proud of what I did. I loved what campaigning and mm -hmm. I lost, but I don't consider that a loss in my life. I sure. consider it a great memory in the scrapbook of this journey. And so, yeah, the story is still being written. I'm 64 mm -hmm. years old as of a week ago. Yeah. I know I don't particularly act like I'm 64, be honest with you, I feel like I just got out of college and I'm anxious to see what happens next. <laughs> well, you're you're one of the few SNL alum to um fully retain your your boyish good looks from when you were on the show. <laughs> I can can offer you that. I'd say Well, I wish it were I wish I could say it's good clean living, but uh <laughs> well, maybe maybe not so much. Uh good genes then. But let's you know what, let's not get ahead of ourselves cuz okay. obviously uh you know there there was a whole lot of living in between uh you know your birth and when you uh <laughs> ventured into politics. So um all I really know about you as far as pre-SNL is that it all started in Iowa. So yeah, where I am now. 
Yeah. So it's, it's come back. full circle, obviously. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about growing up in sixties, Iowa. Like what, what's, what's your family like? Where, where do you hail from? Like what, just paint a picture. Well, that, that, thank you for that question because it, it's unusual to actually be able to tell this part. And, and I don't want it to be self-indulgent, but I think that there's something, there's something magical about coming from nowhere. Mm-hmm. And by nowhere, I mean, I grew up in Iowa where you send your box tops off to New York to get the secret Dakota ring. It's like nothing was generated here. This was called a flyover state. Right. You know, you'd go somewhere and say you're from Iowa and they'd say, is that where they grow potatoes? You know, we grow up with a certain <laughs> anonymity here, but we also have access to all the same things. And especially now with computers, you know, we're as online and connected as anybody. But right. back in the 60s, it was television. So I grew up just loving Barney Fife on, on the Andy Griffith show, Dick Van Dyke, you know, Red Skelton, uh, the Beatles I was infatuated with from the day they landed on Ed Sullivan on February 9th, 1964 to this day. Mm-hmm. So I grew up fantasizing about this world and wanting to be part of it. So I was the class clown. I was the guy that imitated all the teachers and the principal and all that stuff. I did all the plays and I did speech and debate and all of these things. And it sort of formed this person. Um, I want to say modest because I come from a very modest family and in a modest neighborhood, but I was very confident that I had the ability to entertain people Mm -hmm. that took me to Northwestern university where I became pals with Brad Hall, uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who I knew before Brad knew. And others, and we did theater together. We participated with Second City together. And that led, I'm giving you the Reader's Digest version (laughs) now, that led to Saturday Night Live and it started a career. Right. Okay. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it it wasn't like there was one magical moment where you saw a movie or you went to a show or something and you're like, I want to do that. You're you're saying that this was just kind of infused in you. You kind of always knew that you had that uh, spark where you were going to be performing in one capacity or another. Yes, and and I want to make it very clear, and people might not even believe me. My goal was never fame and fortune. A fortune would be nice, but it was sure. never fame. Fame is a byproduct of working and getting mm-hmm. lucky because you're working in something that's popular. Right. Now, I was on Saturday Night Live. I did not become famous. I, you know, I'm in the shadow of Eddie Murphy and Billy Crystal and Marty Short and all of these incredible people. But I was just happy to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted more. I wanted to find more things that gave me more opportunity to entertain people. Uh, I found that it difficult. I found those difficult waters to navigate. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I would look around and go, well, I got cut out of the show this week. But you know what? I'm getting paid to live in New York City. That's sure. not too bad. There's always a itself. silver lining when <laughs> right. you're in the cast at SNL. Yeah, there is. Of upside. course there is. <laughs> sure. Of course there is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it can be frustrating. You know, it is hard to work hard all week and then your sketches are cut or mm-hmm. or whatever, 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 you know, there's lots of so many moving parts to a show like that, that we can go into if you want to. But again, I was happy to be there. Mm -hmm. All I ever wanted to do was work, make a living, be in the process of a production, whether it's the stage, television, a film and be included. And I managed to do that. Yeah. No, it's, uh, landing at SNL it's 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 a feat that is a a collision of just the the universe aligning for you but also you know your own raw talent that at least puts you in the running so uh it's it, anyone that makes it on the show whether they are you know the the Eddie Murphys of of history or not uh 
it's it's an achievement in and of itself, and it's well, something look, worth celebrating to be able to count yourself among that you know pantheon of, of players. So well, uh, let don't, me give don't, this, don't sell yourself short. Uh, well, you're very kind. Let me, <laughs> let me give this to the listeners who are taking notes, right? Okay. If you want to be successful, don't make fame and fortune your goal. Make mm. work your goal. Yes. When we were in Chicago, me, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Paul Barras, Rush Pearson, Jane Muller, a host, host of people, our goal wasn't Saturday Night Live. Our goal wasn't anything except that particular show we happened to be doing and mm-hmm. having the best time we could and drawing a local audience. My goal at the time, right before I got Saturday Night Live with Julia and Brad and Paul, was to get a local commercial for a place called Steak and Shake so maybe I'd make a few <laughs> bucks so I could take sure. my girlfriend out to the movies. I mean, yeah. literally, that was my goal. It was just that. I just wanted to make enough money to put gas in the car. Right. What we did rather cleverly is that we built a theater next door to Second City, <laughs> and it was called the Practical Theater Company. And of the dozen or so shows we'd done over the previous three years from 1979 to 1982, we put all the best skits together and we called it the Golden 50th anniversary jubilee <laughs> right yeah now we just had on the gary and kenny show bob tischler who was the producer under dick ebersall he came mm-hmm. in to do the show just last week and it'll be on in a couple of weeks and he said kroger we were told to come to chicago to see you word had gotten out that there was this really good guy that seemed to be what we're looking for to en- enhance the cast for the 1982-3 season mm-hmm. now, i'm just hearing this basically for the first time from bob I go, well, what do you mean? And he goes, we came to see you, but we fell in love with the cast. You know, you can't deny the talent of Julia Lewis. Right. Right? Yeah. <laughs> or yeah, you realize that you've got, you've got basically, you know, pre-built turnkey cast right. on stage right. here in Chicago. Just hire them all. So yeah. they, they, they hired us. And right. in two weeks, we were trying to figure out how to live in New York and navigate right. the waters of SNL. Now, that's the fairy tale side of the story. Sure. The difficult part was. Basically, the purpose was to light a fire with Eddie Murphy, who was already the established star, but mm-hmm. he was already getting interested in movies and 48 Hours was about to come out. Mm-hmm. And we didn't really find our place on the show that first year. You won't see a lot of me, a lot of Julia. You saw right. Brad on the news, but not in a lot of other things. So that was relatively frustrating because, you know, we were just sort of fleshing out the cast. We were bodies. Right. Yeah. I don't think I figured things out until the third year I was there with Billy Crystal. And those guys really embraced me, Chris Guest and Harry Shearer even. Um, and I was starting to feel like, hey, I know what I'm doing now. But the show was over at the end of sure. 1985. Yeah, as soon as you catch your stride, yeah, they decide to yeah. upend things again. That's actually interesting to hear because the way it looks from the outside is that while the show was losing Eddie, they felt there was maybe a, a gap in the star power of the show. So they bring in four ringers. Right. And so like, at, at least now with SNL, the junior cast, they get to flourish as the senior cast leaves. And there's there's the whole idea of the featured player making their bones and then moving up the ranks. And you guys seem to get overlooked in that regard because that really wasn't the process back then. That was not the process. And now it's almost like a farm club. It's almost like right. the the, M, you know, the, the M, uh, National the Baseball League uh, or Major League Baseball. M- MLB. I've got my acronym <laughs> screwed up. But anyway, it is like baseball and they bring you along. We were neophytes and they didn't really know how to bring us along. Right. Billy and Marty and, and Chris did the show with the intention of only doing it one year. They just wanted mm-hmm. a little jump start to what their career and it worked. So yeah. when they left, Eversol wasn't going to stay. The show was canceled. People don't know this in 1985. Mm-hmm. It was over. Yeah. I think Dick Eversol was going to put in a wrestling show. But that's when Lauren Michaels said, I'm coming back only if I get to start over clean slate. 
Right. Which is what happened. So I, you know, loaded up the Mazda RX-7 and moved to Beverly. <laughs> sure. It was it was a fun ride while it lasted, but hey, yeah. all good things. Um, but let's 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 not gloss over any of that because there's 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 still a, a ton here to 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 break down. Why don't we just jump all the way back to Northwestern U? Okay, I I want to know your your first intersection with sketch and improv because I mean you're Chicago adjacent basically, so yeah. you had access to all the you know the storied improv houses of Chicago. Um where did you make your bones? Like how did, how did you study and learn the craft? Did you do it in the university or did you no. uh, go to some of the, the training centers or what was your path to actually ramp it up and starting your troop? Well, here's what happens when you go to a place, you know, Northwestern is almost conservatory, like because it attracts people who were confident like me, who had some high school experience. Maybe they were the stars in their local high school, right? It attracts these people. Well, guess what? When you want to do things, you figure out ways to do them. In other words, yes, there's university theater, there's student theater, there's all sorts of pro, and you get involved. Mm -hmm. But I was hungry to always be doing something. Brad was hungry. Julia, names that I, I keep mentioning, like Paul Barras, Rush Pearson. Mm -hmm. um, we wanted to be doing things all the time. So those kinds of people attract each other. Right. And we became friends through the theater and we would hang out and our hangouts were improv without knowing we were improv. We would pretend to be the Beatles. We would just do strange <laughs> stream of consciousness things at parties. Sure. Well, that evolved. Brad and Paul created what was called the attack theater, which became the practical theater mm -hmm. where they wrote their own plays and they did some seldom produced plays like Brecht. <laughs> and it lent itself to creating comedy. I became involved, others became involved, and we found ourselves wanting to do original comedy shows. It was very organic, and there is very stream of conscious, these kinds of shows that we did. It was political. It was physical. I would like to say cerebral, but we, we were young people, athletic, and we created a kind of guerrilla theater that you don't see much of. Okay. I don't even think we called it improv at the time, because what we would do is we would get together and we would come up with a concept. One of us would throw it out and then we'd play. We'd, Im we'd improvise. So you just not, workshop just for we fun. We workshopped like you, our yeah, own okay. stuff. One of us or two of us would take it away, kind of write a script, bring it back, and we would create a show. And even with, within the show, there was always, we knew each other and we trusted each other, which are the elements of improvisation. Mm -hmm. So if one of us went off somewhere, the other would follow. And we became quite well known at this. Well, Second City was an afterthought to us. I mean, yeah, it's right there and we went to see it, but it wasn't our goal. But like I said, eventually we opened a theater next to Second City and eventually uh, Julia went on to the touring company of Second City. I went through the Second City classes. Eventually we started forming this concept of, well, improvisation has some building blocks, some rules. There are games from which you right. can learn to stretch your mind and think on your feet. So in that sense, it became improv. Okay. So you were self-made, but you went back and got your degree just to make yeah. sure you were well-rounded, basically. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, to this day, teach improv or pre-COVID, I would go to companies in the mm -hmm. seminar and teach people in the company from the IT department or first impressions or the sales <laughs> right. department how to do improv from the improv games and, and rules that I learned at Second City. 
Very good. So that was, that was the, the big disconnect. That's what I was going to ask. Like, did you make it to SNL without any formal foundation for your comedy? Yeah. But in, in a way, we created like our own foundation. Yeah. You, you, you could have ended up there regardless, but still you, you did get involved with second city and, and yeah. uh, do that, that traditional training as well. well so second it, city is, is, you know, that's the mothership. Right. And the people who came through there. I mean, it's a who's who. I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's credibility too. like if you're oh, a little course. upstart theater and you want, you know, to to make sure that you guys are on the radar. Well, and the know, producer of Second City, who's who's passed away, Bernie Sollins, mm-hmm. he loved yep. us. He was the cigar chumping guy. You know, these <laughs> sure. kids, are, they're, they're cute. They're fun. Sheldon Patinkin, who was intimately involved, loved mm-hmm. our troupe, I think, because our energy reminded him of the old days of the compass players and even right. the pre second city when it's almost renegade. Yeah. When it's a little dangerous. Right. And so they really embraced us and they pushed, you know, they pushed us in front of, you know, the uh, Saturday night live. Yeah. It, it's, it's funny that, um, all of those luminaries that basically wrote the books literally on, on sketch and improv. Um, by the time you come around, they have transitioned into the institution. And yeah. so you do need some, some rogues, some outsiders, some uh, hungry, you know, upstarts to come and kind of challenge the, the orthodoxy. And you were just right in the midst of that at a time when SNL was probably looking to up its edgy cred. Cause obviously it had taken a beating for a couple seasons before they, they brought you guys in. You're, you're right. Mm-hmm. However, that was also part of the problem that we faced. We mm-hmm. thought we were going to go there and take our brand of comedy and stretch the parameters of SNL. Now, that was probably pretty naive. Mm-hmm. We wanted to bring our political humor in. Second, or, or Second Life at that time, comedy in general, I think, in the early to mid-80s was sort of cartoonish. It was very caricature-driven. Mm-hmm. Not character-driven, but caricature-driven. Sure. Um, and we didn't fit quite. You know, we had weird things that we did. Like, uh, I mean, I, I, w- I wouldn't know which. I, I did a bad ventriloquist act on stage that didn't translate to TV. We played kernels of popcorn uh, in, in battle. Again, <laughs> the, the words aren't translating into comedy particularly well, but that was the problem. Sure. It, the theatrical aspect of what we did, the physical, didn't really fit mm-hmm. into a camera. So it we didn't quite fit in doing that dangerous stuff that we wanted to do. Yeah. Probably doesn't hit as hard at the table read either. Like it's hard to maybe get <laughs> no. advocates for something a little more avant-garde, but nonetheless, SNL saw the merit in you. So yes. how, how do those worlds collide? Um, you know, when did you get on the radar? How did, was there an addition process or did they just scoop you up and say, you're, you're in, let's do this. Like, how did that all come about? They scooped us up. Um, you know, again, I thought they'd come out to see all of us. I, I you know, I went, my agent called me when I was doing the show, you know, maybe we're making 50 bucks a week and said, uh, we want to send a tape of you to SNL. So maybe there was some buzz and I just went on tape and I just improvised, you know, Ed Sullivan yesterday and today and the, and the Beatles, <laughs> I did all the things and may God bless I, Red Skelton, all of the Barney five. Welcome to the rock. I just threw out everything that I did, sent it off, never thought another word. Mm-hmm. We do a Saturday night show. And we're told the producers of SNL are in the audience. We're in the audience and they want to talk to you. They said, can you meet us at our hotel, uh, the Hilton on Sunday? They sat us down and said, we want to, we want you guys to be flesh out the cast. We want, they hired Paul as a writer and me and Brad and Julia to be in the cast. Can you be in New York in two weeks? 
I said yes. Julia immediately said yes. Brad and Paul said, well, give us some time to think about this. Because they just started this theater, really. Sure. And it was successful. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had to think about it. But they came around to saying yes. And yeah, that's how it's quickly not, it's it not an opportunity you pass up, even if you're you're building something and you're proud of like what you're already involved in. Well, you know, to quote John Lennon, to pass up. right. But, you know, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. Right. Going back to my <laughs> little piece of advice. Mm-hmm. Don't necessarily make that your end goal, your focus. Do the craft, do the art, and they'll find you. Right. And if they don't find you, you still found your happiness because you enjoy what you're doing. Sure. That's the key. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, you you certainly uh, took your own advice. Yeah, I'm happy. <laughs> worked, worked out pretty well for you. So, okay. So they just scoop you up. They say, yeah, they, as the way I hear it, from you uh their minds were basically made up it was a foregone conclusion yeah. when you guys walked in that room that there was going to be an offer on the table for you yeah. you guys you you all end up signing yeah had you ever spent much time in new york prior to this or were you squarely visit, a midwestern boy a midwestern boy but i'd visited a couple of times i had a friend out there and we'd spend a weekend or something like that go to the theater but living there mm-hmm. no that was a strange strange animal julia what Julia is in a different situation than I am, but I'm this poor little Midwestern boy. I thought I'd won the lottery. I can't imagine winning a hundred million dollars any more exciting than can you be on Senate live in two weeks? Right. I mean, it was a thrill that outside of the birth of my children, I don't think I can ever equal, you know, sure. the anticipation alone was just so exciting. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine. And, uh, there's, a, there's only a handful of people on this planet that get to tell that particular story of what it feels like when you land SNL and you're packing up because the show starts in a couple of weeks and you need yeah. to be there and just bring in your a game and you've never even done the city life and it's just all new and fresh. Right. So, so here's the city yeah. life. We didn't have any place to live. So they put us in the Berkshire hotel, you know, right. for a couple of weeks where we could find a place to live. Each of us, our own apartment. So we're mm-hmm. in the Berkshire hotel. Maybe the second day I'm in New York, I get on the elevator and there's Aretha Franklin goes down a floor. <laughs> Muhammad Ali gets in. <laughs> sure. You're, you're working in the center <laughs> of the world. Oh my God. Is this what New York is? Well, not it for is. everyone, not for everyone, but when you work at 30 rock occasionally. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, your first episode, it's Chevy chase sorta, but Queens, yeah. the musical guest. Yeah. And there's a, there's a whole bunch of like friends of the show that kind of just are out that week, kind of doing some of the heavy lifting for Chevy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's not like a, a quiet, modest show to kind of kick off your SNL career into. Like, I don't know, watching Freddie Mercury do his thing. I, I have to imagine that there was a moment where you just had to step back and say, is this really my life now? <laughs> like when did well, it hit you that this is actually just, this is what I do now. this is what happened. Uh, You know, it was very disappointing that Chevy Chase chose not to be there and was just remote. But at the same time, it opened up, he wasn't going to do a lot of sketches that way. So it opened up the opportunity to introduce us. And actually that first show, uh, Brad and Julia and I had a lot to do. Mm -hmm. We we were pretty heavy in that show. Um, Queen came on Thursday and the word came down, Freddie Mercury can't sing. He has laryngitis. Mm how can there be a performance of queen without Freddie Mercury? So I can't imagine what was going on behind the scenes, but eventually I think he went to a doctor and I'm only guessing a shot of cortisone or something. So he came out, did crazy little thing called love and he was Freddie Mercury. Right. You know, I mean, he performed, maybe he's a little off his game, but it's Freddie Mercury and queen. Yeah. 
ninety percent Freddie Mercury is still pretty darn good. <laughs> pretty darn good. Yeah. But I remember being backstage right outside of their dressing room, standing right next to Freddie Mercury. He's looking at me, <laughs> trying to figure me out. I'm looking at him, and I'm and that's when I thought, is this what I get to do now? There was a party after the show, and I'm sitting with Queen in their booth. <laughs> Pinch me. Pinch me. But I remember the first moment, Brad and I, the first um, sketch, I think, was a character of Eddie Murphy's, the artist, Tyrone. Yeah, yeah. Stab my he, landlord. Stab he, my landlord. Yeah. yeah. Stab my yeah. landlord. And he had an art exhibit. And I apologize to people today because at the time we didn't realize that playing somewhat effeminate characters. Uh, yes, black turtleneck guy. Black turtleneck yeah, guy, yeah. right? But yes. Brad and I were both sort of, we were, we were, we were gay. Right. I mean, that was sort of the characterization. Right, right, it was yeah. to be erudite and like that. And, and, and I apologize now. My consciousness has expanded. I, I We were playing stereotypes and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. But at the time, that wasn't on our radar. We just sure. thought these are perfect ways to play these art critic type people. Mm-hmm. Right before five seconds to air, I looked at that red light in camera one and realized 20 million eyeballs are going mm-hmm. to be on us when that light goes bing. And for that second, I thought, oh, and there was no delay. There was no second delay. There was no Charles Rocket second delay or anything <laughs> right. like that at that yeah. time. And I thought this, I can, I thought to myself, I can never let my brain go there again because I'm not in the moment. Sure. I am way outside right now thinking about if I wipe my nose all these people are going to see it. I'd never had an experience like that before. Yeah, but, I don't think that the human brain is not designed to be able to process no, that no. kind of a notion. But once <laughs> you get through that, and mm-hmm. I made a decision, don't go there again. You've sort of done your trial by fire. Yeah. You know, it's it's easier after that. Yeah. How quickly do you feel that um, that all just started to be dull noise and you could actually be in the moment and invest in a performance the way you could on a stage. Do you ever feel you got that comfortable at SNL? Yeah. Honestly, that moment. Now I'm sure there was more to it than I remember, but I remember Mm -hmm. that moment. My commitment was always to learn the lines, not use the cue cards and be in it. Okay. Sometimes that didn't work or something, or the host would drop a line and you go, where the heck are we? You know, there were times when you use lines. Sure. But my commitment was always to make it theater. Okay. And I didn't have so much to do that I couldn't memorize all my lines. Yeah, I was going to say that's it's tricky to do at SNL just because of the the amount of rewriting and just the the frenetic Sometimes the rewriting that. is a half yeah. hour before the live show. And and you, yeah. you have to rely on the tools that you're given. Mm-hmm. But anytime I could make it theatrical in terms of just playing it right here, I did. Yeah. Well, if you have that discipline, you should definitely use it cuz it can't help or it can't it can't but help your performance right. if you if that's not one thing you have to be tied to. John Lovitz credits his run at SNL with his willingness to just double down and memorize, even though yeah. he's never encouraged to do so. Um, yeah, okay. So fascinating advice for anyone who's on the show now. Give it a shot. See if <laughs> see if you can up your game. Well, I mean, um, you know, I can always tell when they're reading. I mean, maybe yeah, yeah. most people can, but if you're not in, if you don't know there are cue cards, you might not think that anybody's reading. But I, I know when you know, right? Yeah, I it's it's eyes. pretty easy to spot. Yeah. Um. Okay. So you're at the show. You're you're in the cast. Eddie's. You know, he's blowing up. Um. You do that first season, which my own personal take on it is that that to me feels like when SNL began to get its groove back a little bit. Like there was so much. Um, 
just turnover and turmoil and uh, just sorting out the cast and just figuring out what SNL was going to be during season six and seven. Mm -hmm. And you got to kind of sidestep that and and come in when the show had a star. So they had a little bit of heat and there was already enough players in the cast that had been doing it for a couple of years that they weren't so unknown and so unseasoned that there wasn't an audience out there that had embraced them. Like you were coming into, I guess the most stable version of early eighties SNL that you were going to get. Did you, did you feel like that? Do you feel like there, there was some momentum with the show and it was gelling or week over week? Was there, was there that anxiety of, uh, you know, are we going to get panned? Like how much of that kind of seeped into your experience at SNL? Well, Eddie Murphy was the star. And Mm -hmm. a, a week after we got there, I think 48 hours came out and it changed the chemistry of the show. Everybody loved Eddie already. But now when Eddie came out, there was a gasp. There was a second delay in the audience. You had to wait for the sketch to start. You could Mm -hmm. feel the shift in polarity because Eddie Murphy, this emerging superstar. And then don't forget, um, Trading Places came out and then Beverly Hills Cop. Mm -hmm. Like one, two, three is like it changed everything. Right. Now, that being said, I was in awe and still am in awe of Eddie Murphy. In awe. But do you know who the... Do you know who Saturday Night Live was to me? Piscopo. Well, Piscopo, okay. I related to in a way because I saw him work. So Eddie was effortless. Mm-hmm. Joe put in the time. I would watch him perfect characters, imitations, everything, his timing. And he was so memorable looking with his, <laughs> you <Yep>. know, his, <laughs> his bro. <laughs> Um, that Piscopo was SNL to me. So I really, and we're still friends. I really looked up to Joe, but Joe and Eddie were the stars of the show and the rest. And Tim Kazarinski held his own. The rest of us sort of picked up table scraps in a way. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but it was mentioned on the Brad Hall show with my show with Brad. I was fired after season one. I just, Mm -hmm. I had a couple of good shows and I had two, three, four bad shows where I didn't do anything. I, the contribution that I was trying to make wasn't seen and I was fired. And of course I was crestfallen. I'm at home back in Iowa going, well, I'm not going to return. Brad and Julia got picked up and I get a phone call from Bob Tischler and he says, Hey, um, there's a way to get you back here. Brad Hall came into Dick Ebersol and made a case for me. He said, Kroger's funny. He's talented. You just didn't use him correctly. So they said, okay, come on back. So I did come back and I sat down to the task of starting to create characters. Ira Needleman. I did some things that were a little more memorable. El Dorco. (laughs) No one one was going to clear the path for you at the show. You were going to have to kind of take that Um, message yourself. An imitation. Well, Walter Mondale obviously didn't become president, but I thought, you know what? Even if he doesn't, nobody's going to do Walter Mondale better than I can (laughs) coming from the Midwest. So I did him three or four times on the show. I found my legs then. Mm -hmm. Well, Eddie was fading out. He was actually just doing like pre-records at that point. And the show changed again after the, after my second year, Mm -hmm. um, Brad uh, had some issues with uh, the, the way it was being produced and left the show. And Julia and Mary and I came back with the new cast, the third year, which was Billy Crystal. Right. And, and Marty and, and all of them. Um, that was a very different year from the previous two. But to your point, it felt 
like the show was still solidifying, even though there was such a different cast in that year. Mm-hmm. It felt like the show was getting strong again and getting noticed and people were sharing the catchphrases and, you know, sure. I hate when that marvelous. happens and all those yeah. things. You are <laughs> yeah. marvelous. Yeah. Well, Billy was a monster genius <laughs> at creating that sort of thing. Now, when you touched on this season, when, at, when we were talking earlier, you said that you felt like the ringers, you know, those guys, um, that they were, they were generous with you or that you felt like, you know, uh, you were being supported in a way. Yeah. So how, how did that work? Cause they're coming in basically like um, Billy Crystal had done the show and uh, well, Harry Shearer had done the show too, yeah. uh, but um, they were still coming in fairly fresh. So how is like, aside from them being established names and, and uh, just probably getting a lot of juicy roles and, and generating a lot from their, their yeah. own material. What was it about having them dropped in the, the middle of the cast that you felt kind of helped you get a leg up or just made that last season I'm assuming uh, a pleasant one for you. Well, again, uh, that question's never been asked, and, and I thank you because there's an answer to it. Um, these guys would create their own stuff; they were masters at creating their stuff. But there's always a need. Bob Tischler called me the best, uh, you know, sixth man available in in the <laughs> okay. world of TV comedy like that. There's always a need for something more, and they quickly realized, "Hey, Kroger, can you do Alan Alda?" Well, I would work him up and I said, give me 20, 20 minutes. The blood on Klinger's apron is clashing with his paisley dress. <laughs> I would work these things up. Can you do Robert Mitchum? Well, this is my business. I would work things up as quickly as they could. Sure. So I would be the filler for them when they needed those sorts of little things. Mm-hmm. And I did it well. And so dependability. So that was, that was the key. I was dependable <laughs> and they could throw me anything. Hey, we got it. Somebody's got to do this. Hey, Kroger can do it. So I had developed a place within their circle. Um, And that was one of the happiest places I've ever been in my career because I can't tell you how much I admire all of them. I mean, to this day, I'm in awe of the fact that they'd say hi, Kroger, if they see me, you know? Well, it was a unique season of the show to be involved in. And uh, how much more uh, just glorious that it turned into it sounds like a highlight of your tenure on the show being involved with those guys the last season. Um, no, that's a, that is, that is definitely the way to do SNL to be able to walk away and say, Hey, you know what? That's not something everyone gets to do in their life. And I just, I got to do that and it was fun. Um, so yeah, good on you, but the show didn't last forever. Everyone knows where things go after that. Cause, uh, you know, it's time to retool. Dick Ebersol doesn't want to do it. Uh, like you, you mentioned the show was formally canceled, mm-hmm. uh, you know, pending Lauren Michaels return. Uh, it does get retooled and, and rebuilt over the course of the eighties, but obviously, uh, you know, maybe if Mondale had been elected, they would have been able to <laughs> keep you on the show, but, uh, otherwise you have to begin a new phase of your life. So yeah. was it, was it a heavy blow to find out that SNL was ending or did you kind of already have confidence that you were going to, you know, have a fallback position that was going to be fun for you? Well, I don't know that I had a lot of confidence of the fallback position, but you, we kind of knew the whole year that okay. those guys never talked about continuing. And yeah. I always knew that I wasn't in a place where they were going to base the show around me and Julia if we stayed. Right. So I, I was preparing at least for half of that year to, well, uh, there's not much work in New York outside of SNL and the Cosby show. There wasn't much at all. So I realized <laughs> well, I'm going to have to move to L.A. Now, the good news is I had ICM as my agent, major agency in New York mm-hmm. and in L.A. So I had a great agent when I went out to L.A. 
But in 85, the summer, I got in the car and I moved across country and started a career. Now, I, I was fortunate because I had a good agent and I got zillions of auditions. I had a development deal at CBS. But the reality of show business is, you know, it's every show is like winning the lottery. Mm -hmm. You're competing against hundreds of shows and concepts and just a few slots. And this right. is pre-explosion of cable, too, you know. Mm -hmm. In fact, there were none of there was no Netflix. There was no yeah. Amazon. Landing so one was, show in a career is right. a miracle. Trying to do that twice. <laughs> right, right. Right. So it was it, it, it was very difficult. I got some episodic. I got a, a show that got picked up for half a season. You know, uh, I got movies of the week with a pilot option. I mean, I, I kept working and kept working. None of it actually ever exploded. Mm -hmm. You know, Julia gets this thing called Seinfeld. Uh, well, you know, it was That's never going to go anywhere. No, honestly, <laughs> I would go to the tapings of Seinfeld and watch my friend and Larry David. And the show was like 73 out of 76 shows or something like that. And I go, well, I guess this it's a funny show. It's so clever. But I guess this just isn't America's cup of tea. <laughs> mm -hmm. well. I don't know, 1990, <laughs> 91 or something like that. Well, the stars aligned. It was lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Jumping back to the, the Brad Hall uh, talk that you had on your podcast, mm -hmm. uh, there was a fun insight in there about Seinfeld, not to go too far off on a rabbit trail, but uh, how interesting it was that the show really started to catch its stride when they embraced what Julia could bring to the show. Yeah. And there is a marked difference in the third season. Like yeah. you can, you can tell exactly when it all clicks, they realize what the show's structure had to be about weaving storylines and how right. pivotal she would be, you know, week over week. And uh, it is, it is just interesting to hear you guys bat that around and see so clearly, you know, where the, where the, the genuine success and brilliance in, yeah. in that show and when it actually hit it's cause it's, it's so true. But anyways, again, go check out, go check out your podcast. Cause well, well, I'm not, I'm not telling you, I'm telling your audience because those are, those are the, the kind of uh, insights that, uh, it's just hard to to come by people that can just look at something that clearly because you're very close to the people or the situations involved that you just you understand it at a more intuitive level. So, uh, yeah, anyways, there plug number two is in the can. Well, I appreciate um, it. But let's uh, let's jump back to your career because you're in L.A. now you're you know, you're you're moving and shaking. You're you're doing what's coming your way. You're you've got a development deal that you're working on. Um, but obviously. You weren't on the next Seinfeld. Um, you ended up going in a, a, a different direction. Now, from your time out there, how do I put this? Did there come a point where you started to get sour on the idea of chasing this and started getting antsy feet about wanting to do something else? Or did that decision get made for you? Well, I would say more or less it gets made for you. Again, mm. I'm going to go back to what we talked about in the very beginning. My goal wasn't fame and fortune. And, and I hope people believe me. It was to work. Mm -hmm. And that might have been a fundamental mistake in this sense. You know, back in those days, we're talking mid 80s, early 90s, you were pigeonholed. You did TV or you pursued movies. Right. Maybe you do a commercial, but you really didn't cross pollinate. Right. I just wanted to work. People would say, hey, Kroger, you're you're a pretty affable guy. Would you want to host this thing? A lot of voices would say, Kroger, if you host a game show, for example, it's career suicide, it's, it's career suicide. Right. Yeah. But I did get tired in a sense of the cycle. Well, I did a pilot and it didn't go. I did half a mm -hmm. season. It didn't go. I'm sitting here on my thumbs. I got to move. I got to work. They want me for the newlywed game. 
okay, well, that could have been, uh, I don't want to say career suicide because it wasn't career suicide, but mm-hmm. it, it might have diminished my equity in certain circles. I don't sure. know. I don't know. Really, it becomes about being in the right place at the right time and, and being lucky. You know, for mm-hmm. example, you know, talk about Seinfeld again. Uh, they wanted me to do a part, and I couldn't even tell you in the history of it which part it was. But they said, Kroger, can you come in? We're interested in you for this scene with a great character with Julia. And I said, oh, guys, I just said yes to a, a, a movie of the week with a back-end pilot, and it's the same week. I can't do it. Well, the pilot was uh, Archie to Riverdale and back. I played Reggie. I made money, but it didn't go anywhere. Right. Well, Seinfeld blew up. You know, I would have been part of that world and that could have changed my course. You know, it could have. I don't know. It could have. But you just don't know. Again, my motivation was to be busy. It was to entertain in any way that I could. Yeah. And well, so the flip I, side is you take that job on Seinfeld for a few weeks and then you find out that the show you had to drop to do it ends up, you know, taken off. You, know, right. you, you can you can play what if all you want. But at the end of the day, like you said, ultimately, since some of it is out of your hands, you might as well just keep working and just keep doing what you do. That's enjoyable and let the chips fall where they may. And occasionally well, you'll end up on SNL and occasionally right. you'll end up on Seinfeld or who knows. Right. I, I took some calculated risks, most of which fell on the risk side rather mm-hmm. than the, what I had calculated. But here's the point for me anyway. Mm-hmm. I was never unhappy. You know, even when I was hosting game shows, my job was to, and I got paid well, I'm getting paid well to make people happy by giving them cash and prizes. Sure. That's there not are a bad worse, job. There are worse gigs. There are <laughs> yeah, worse there gigs. Are, yeah. I'm not mining coal. <laughs> I don't have black lung disease. You know, I'm be getting paid to make regular folks happy because I'm sending them to Hawaii. That's a good job. Yeah. So how'd you get involved in the big picture? Is that just because you crossed paths with Chris Guest at the show? Or? Chris called me up based on, you know, knowing me. And he said, hey, I got I, I think that it was one of those parts that you don't really go through casting for. It was a small but memorable role. And Chris said, hey, can you come in and do this? Mm-hmm. And so I, I came in and did it. And yeah, it's, it, you know, it, it's memorable. It's fanta- yeah, well, it's a, just a fantastic movie. You are now uh, just two degrees from Kevin Bacon. Very true. Very true. But somehow or another, this all ends up evolving into, I'm assuming, an interest in politics or you wouldn't have run. So uh, there's still a lot of life here to, to cover. Yeah, so right. what, you know, what, what happens at this point that gets you on a completely different track in your life? A child. Whoa. A, okay. A son. I'm married at the time and, uh, I had a son and for me, and I think it comes back to just my family values mm-hmm. and my true course. My true course is just to be busy, to be respectful, um, and to be respected for what I do. That that's mm-hmm. always been my compass. Yeah. And when I had a son and I thought, well, we can live here, we can live here. But if we live here, daddy's got to get a pilot or something. Um, mm-hmm. L.A. became insufferable for me as a father. You know, I the studio is an hour and a half drive. The air isn't pristine. You know, schools are expensive. Crime. There's all the, the expense of things. Sure. Just the sheer expense creates a culture where everybody's kind of gouging you because everybody's got to pay the same mortgage, you know? Yeah. You get your oil changed. Everything's jacked up to make this city work. Mm -hmm. And that's fundamentally not who I am. 
So I started going, I want to be a dad. I want to be a great dad and somehow figure out how to make this work and still do what I do. Looked around the country and lo and behold, in my old hometown of Cedar Falls, Iowa, there was an advertising company. I said, hey, you know, I could write commercials and do things with them and direct them and things like that. They literally said, come aboard. Mm -hmm. So it was very hard to leave the life that I knew and loved and my friends who are still there. They're doing things that I'm envious of. I miss honey wagons. I miss craft service tables. I miss getting up in the morning and going to a set. I miss <laughs> that stuff. I really do. But I made the decision with my wife, we're divorced, but with my wife to say, you know what? It's about this little creature now. Sure. So we moved to the Midwest and I took the job and I get to fulfill my needs. I do community theater. I'm now in Mamma Mia, as a matter of fact. <laughs> um, and I direct commercials and I write them. I've actually created a cottage industry in marketing. Um, and I got my feet wet in politics because I've always been interested in politics. My family was engaged in politics, the practical theater. We were very political, but I didn't have an avenue. Mm -hmm. But in the Midwest, I can get my arms around a community. You know, people know me. I write a column for the newspaper. Um, I fundraise at every event possible that I can possibly think of every charity. I'm well known as a community figure. So I thought that this would translate very well on being a representative of people. Um, I'm a progressive and I'm, I'm in a very conservative district. And so I didn't win, mm -hmm. but like I said earlier, uh, that's okay. <laughs> you know, sure. I mean, my goal was to win. But when you don't win or you don't get the series, the pilot doesn't get picked up. You're not in Congress. You still have the fulfillment of knowing that your aim is true. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to stop. I don't know what's next. Hey, maybe a TV show. Maybe the podcast will blow up. Maybe I'll run for office again. You know, uh, maybe my little marketing company that I'm starting will, will blow up. Maybe I'll be able to contribute even more to charitable foundations. You know, sure. I mean, I figure I still got 40 good years left. Yeah, there's, there's plenty, plenty of story <laughs> right. there still. So, still right. yeah, there's plenty of story there. Life is a scrapbook. It's not a narrative with a beginning, middle. And when it's the end, you're not even aware of it. So it's got to be a scrapbook where you open it up and you go, wow, wow, I did that. And, you know, um, I started a restaurant, mm -hmm. which was a wonderful Italian restaurant where the waiters sang and I would sing um, commerce, business, COVID, things like that. It all went south. But again, <laughs> is it a failure? No. I did it, and it was a dream sure. of mine. Well, very good. I just gave you the whole story arc there, didn't you, I? You, you did, and and it, it was a good one, and it was all on theme, right? Like just, yeah, just keep right. working, you just keep on exploring and and chase your muse. Um, did you say you had a a boy? Well, I now have two boys, and I'm remarried, okay. and I have I have five children now. Okay, so, so a I, couple of them came along with the second marriage, or three came with your, the second marriage. Yeah, yeah. okay, three came and, with the second marriage, and so okay. yeah, we're a Brady Bunch family. But outside of our two youngest who are still in high school, everybody else is off to college. Very nice. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that LA, if, if I had a choice and where I'd want to raise my kids, I, I've, I see LA as being the sort of place that kind of taxes your soul a little bit. Like you're, you're, um, there's no way to not be focused on what your life yeah. would have been down there career wise, like you said, cause there's so much pulling at you all the time. And, uh, there's just such a, an elevated cost and, and just, yeah, there'd be so much pulling you away from your family. 
I think you made the right call. I, I think well, I, I, if you're yeah. really going to double down and just make sure that you can bring your best to your kids, do you want to be exhausted and on the freeway all day or whatever it <laughs> well, is? So you know, I, I, I can look respect at, it. Yeah. I look at my friend, you know, Brad and Julia, uh, obviously have monster careers and great parents, mm-hmm. and their two sons are phenomenal young men. Uh, Mike and Heidi, I have so many friends that are there, and they've committed to the business. They've committed to L.A., and their kids are marvelous, mm-hmm. wonderful. Um, that might have been me. I might have been able to do that, you know, but things have to line up. And for me, it always had to point, you know, I don't really have an answer for what I'm trying to say. (laughs) It didn't line up for me. Sure. It lined up well for them. It didn't line up for me to where the cost was worth what I felt that I was losing. Maybe I could have made up the gap, but I wasn't willing to take that risk. I wanted to be my dad. I still do. I mean, my dad's passed away, but I wanted to be my dad. When it comes to kids, I think most people go with the sure bet. They're like, yeah, yeah. I, could, I could roll the dice and probably make this work out here in L.A., but I know I can do this upright, you know, where I'm a little bit more in control of my destiny. Uh, just as speaking as a father myself, I can, I can totally yeah. get where you're coming from on that. Um, I don't have any more questions for you. I think, well, I, I think I've this has been, this tremendously. yeah, I, I think this has been a really fun walk through everyone who ends up coming through SNL. They have a fascinating story because how can they not, you know, SNL just, yeah, you didn't go to the grocery store and scratch off a ticket and said, you're now on <laughs> right. SNL, right? Yeah. But I, I find yours to be just particularly intriguing to me personally, just that I I hail from what I would consider Canada's Midwest myself. I'm yeah. I'm adjacent to Detroit, basically the Canada side. Okay, of Detroit, I, I right? know where you are. Um, yeah, so not not actually that far off from the you know where you hail from. Um, I just uh, I always love to live vicariously through people that, like you said right at the outset, you know, you come from nothing. This wasn't there was there was no sure bet that anything was ever going to come from you chasing that passion um so i just love to see it when it you know when it works out and there's a good story and just a uh, just an, an interesting hour of podcasting that can come out of it and uh, i think that's what you gave our audience today and i'm, I'm grateful that you that. joined us well i'm grateful that you that you asked me you know i i i, the, I, I learn from these conversations sometimes when you hear your own story and, and mm-hmm. hear you and, and your questions and things and what interests you the things that you start to hear uh, sort of galvanize your life. Sure. My takeaway from this, if you will, and I appreciate this time with you so much, is I want to be able to create at any given moment what I need. And I need to create a nest. I need to create protection for my kids. I need mm-hmm. to create time with my children. I need to create, um, I need to be able to fashion my career where not so much of it is outside controlled by other elements. Mm-hmm. That's my fundamental beating heart is how can I make sure that this story, as you started with, this story is one where I'm the writer. <laughs> right. As opposed to all these other elements and people and yeah. things and events. That's my yeah, takeaway. Wanna... And I, I I will share this with my wife when I'm on the phone going, hey, I learned something about myself today. <laughs> <laughs> it's all yeah, there's clarity now. <laughs> I'm um, a control no, freak. <laughs> This is, this is fascinating. Um, but before we sign off, we got to let everyone know where they can find your podcast because they can get many more hours of this kind of, of discussion, uh, week over week. So lay it, lay well, it we are, we are on all the major podcast side. Of course, that's iTunes, Spotify, Apple podcasts. We have a YouTube channel. We're now on a new streaming video channel called DB and A 
streaming television. Uh, we premiere a show on Mondays twice a month there, DBNA TV. Um, but Fridays we launch on all of the podcast platforms, which I mentioned again, mm-hmm. I think there might even be some more, but it, and, and we keep, as you very well know, you grow your platforms, but sure. Um, I, I heart radio, um, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and Apple podcasts by okay. 6 a.m. Central time. I think we, we launch every Friday. And the best term for people to search in their podcast app of choice to make sure that you're the first thing that comes up. Well, the Gary and Kenny show, the Gary yeah, and Kenny look, show, look for the bright blue icon. That's how people are and, spot and it. I have a blog. <laughs> Gary has issues and Gary has issues. Will usually Gary and Kenny show will show up. If you okay. remember that Gary has issues and clearly. All right. I do. Well, if people want to check it out, they now know how, where to find it. And uh, yeah, we came in at a, an hour on the dot. So hey, I think that's a good place to leave it. Time for lunch for me. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you so much. Thanks for asking. Thanks for reaching out. And I, I look forward to uh, watching, you know, our what we just did. Yeah, it'll be up in a week or two. I, I hope everyone enjoys it. Great. Thanks a lot. All right. Talk I'll to you later. later. Bye-bye. See ya. Thanks to my very special guest, Gary Kroger. You can connect with Gary on the web at GaryHasIssues.com. And thanks as well to our most generous patrons, Sam Bowers, Neil Weinstein, Justin Gardner, Carissa Eubank, Grace Kogan, and Brian Clark. If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe on YouTube or wherever better podcasts can be found. Your subscription helps us grow and your support is greatly appreciated. We'll be back soon when SNL returns for its May finale run. But until then, this has been episode number 135 of the Saturday Night Live After Party Podcast. I'm John Murray. Good night. Have a pleasant tomorrow.